Chase Chicago! Three titles in six years. Yes, it is worth cheering for. Welcome into another episode of Musings on Madison here on the Second City Odyssey Podcast Network. And I can't even say our website's name right, so we're just going to roll with it because that's the way it's going. I guess this is what happens when the Blackhawks play at 9.30 Central Time and finish after midnight and all that. But yeah, it's Musings on Madison, Second City Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dave Melton. I got my two usual line mates with me who might also be a little sleep groggy. I don't know. I feel like I shouldn't have this many issues, but I, I, here's where we're going. We're drinking coffee, folks. It's uh, 9 at night, and I'm drinking coffee, so you know where I'm at. But uh, the analytics darling of Second City Hockey is here, and that's Shepard Price. Hi, I'm the one used to late starts because I also cover the Vegas Golden Knights. Oh, yeah, well, see, that would make sense. Like, I, I work a lot of evenings. Like, this isn't that late for me. I don't know what's going on. You know what? I, maybe it's, it's – I'm going to blame uh, – we're going to blame the pandemic. I think that's that's an easy target right now. Yeah. Also with us tonight, site manager, and he would skate more than six minutes if I put him in the lineup or somebody was suspended. It is Brandon Kane. I mean, I feel like I would be the one who was suspended, though. <laughs> what would you, if, you were to, if you were in a hockey player and you got suspended from a playoff game, what would you be getting suspended for? Spearing someone in the groin. No question. <laughs> I'm a little alarmed at how quickly you were able to go to that response. Oh, it'd definitely be a thing. Or it'd be the case like with Ryan Hartman the other day, like being the dick, like grabbing a stick on the bench and then being the one who gets speared. <laughs> Classic All right. Ryan Hartman. All right. All right. Shepard, what about you? If you were to get suspended, what would be your, uh, your crime? Boarding. <laughs> Just the most, just the most like goons on this team. The most like overboarding you've ever seen. Because you usually don't get suspended for boarding. It would just be like super egregious, is what you're saying. Yep. Yeah. Super egregious boarding. What's wrong with you two? Yet we've got a serial boarder, a potential spearer. I'd probably go for a hit to the head or something, or like a blatant elbow to the head. I, I have a. When I was played football as a kid, I had a bad habit of, like, if a guy was holding me excessively, I'd turn around like, smack him upside the head, which doesn't do much in football because they're wearing helmets. But I feel like <laughs> that, that activity would also translate to hockey. So, yeah, like a, a face wash that was more than a face wash or something. Yeah. But I, I guess it's good. You got to get that anger out, although maybe don't punch people in the face. I, I was young. I was dumb. I'm much more mellow now. I agree with you on the pandemic thing because I feel like I've been going to bed around like 10, 10 30 where normally I'm like past midnight going to bed. And that game the other night just like well, you totally to, threw me off. You would be at when the Hawks had home games and you were covering them for the NHL website. Like you wouldn't leave the stadium till after midnight, right? No, it'd be like 11. Oh, okay. I, like I thought it was. I thought it'd be a much later night for that. But yeah, I don't. Know. I'm. I'm not that. I know I'm not young, but I'm certainly not this old. So I don't know what the hell's wrong with me. But anyway, we've got playoff hockey to talk about, gentlemen. For the, I know we've only been doing this for a year, but uh, Brandon, you've been at the site longer than I have. I've been writing here for a little over three years now. 
this is the first time I've written or talked about Blackhawks non-regular season games. So it's a whole new world for us. It's a dazzling place we never knew. Thank you to everyone under the or over the age of 20 that gets those references. After the first two games, the Blackhawks in their five-game series with the Edmonton Oilers split game one and game two. Uh, pretty much, I think, kind of what we all expected them to be. Like, I don't think anybody was calling for a Hawks sweep, but I think a lot of people felt like the Hawks and Oilers were more evenly matched up than the standings may have suggested. So not too much surprise from our end uh, that it's a 1-1 series heading into game three on Wednesday night. But Shepard Brandon, I'll open this floor up to either one of you. We're going to start in chronological order. Just want to get your initial reactions to the absolute joy that was watching the Blackhawks come out with their asses on fire, light up Mike Smith for five goals, get him run from the game, and end up winning 6-4. to four. Uh, Either one of you guys want to take the floor. What was your immediate response to that whole game? Uh, they were like, it felt like they were still waiting for Pat, for Patrick Kane to arrive and they scored six goals already. Like they, <laughs> right. they, they only, they only got like one assist. And I think it was like even then a secondary from Kaner yeah. in that first game. And like, it was just the first line in the power play. And like the power play was like two players, like docking and Kubelik lighting yeah. it up. If you had told me that the Blackhawks were going to win game one with six goals and somebody's going to have a hat trick, I'd have wagered heavy sums of money that Patrick Kane would have been that player not Kubalik, which is no slouch to no slight to Kubalik. That's just how good Patrick Kane is. Kubalik did I, did Kubalik have a hat trick? Oh, sorry, two goals. My bad. I'm sorry. Connor McDavid's hat trick in game uh game two. Yeah. Uh, Kubalik and Taze both had two goals in that game, but like plus like he had five points though. I should we should yeah. Point out. He had five most, most most hell of a, hell of a debut. Most, yeah, most points in a rookie's debut in the playoffs ever. Um, just like. Fantastic game all around. But again, that first line in the power play, like it was amazing to watch those two units. Um, and just like the penalty kill bummed me out that game. <laughs> like there was still, there were still drawbacks even in that six, four game, six, four win. Because again, the power, the penalty kill allowed three of the four goals. And then like the fourth one came with Edmonton having an extra man advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, because the empty netter. So, like, that – it set us set the Blackhawks up for, like, oh, yeah, the penalty kill is going to be a problem in this series. How nervous did you get in the third period when Edmonton scored those two goals and made it 6-4? to four? Scale of 1 to 10, how nervous did you get? Five. Okay. Because I, I, was, I was probably about 6-7 to seven range, like – because I don't know if we'd seen them blow a four-goal lead. I think they – uh, lost a three goal lead to the Blues at some point in the season. Like they were up three nothing, and gave up four goals in the third and lost. A four goal lead would have been a uh, a step above their lowest lows from the regular season. But I think that's kind of indicative of the way they were in the regular season. Is that even a four goal lead in the third period is you're still as soon as Edmonton got one goal, you're a little itchy. Just mainly because they have Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle on the other side of the ice, and Game Two reminded you uh, of the it was the validation of those fears. But we'll get to Game Two in a little bit. Before we do that, I want to go over to Brandon Kane and ask him what his thoughts on Game One were. Mainly that first line because it seemed like as the game went on, there was just this mentality of when they went over the boards, they're like all right, we fucking got this. Yeah. Like, just, yeah. this is no problem. We're just going to do whatever we want, and you can try and stop us, but it's not happening. And that sort of confidence 
I don't think I've seen in quite some time from that grouping. And it's also been like, what, four and a half months since we've seen an actual game. So it was weird to see this like overt confidence from those three guys. And then the rest of the team just like exist. Yeah. Not like in a negative way, but they were just like, well, they're going to do everything for us. So we just don't have to fuck up. And for the most part, credit, they yeah. didn't really do that, so good for them. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, uh, everybody else fulfilled their roles and did not, as you said, uh, fuck it up for the rest of us. Uh, I, I think that was the enduring memory was that top line, and I wrote about this in an article that popped up on uh, Sunday, I think. Just that that top line, it was like vintage. In 2013, the top line was Taves, Hosa, and Sharp. In 2015, it was Taves, Sod, and Hosa. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying that right. Taves out and Hosa in 2015. But that top line with Taves in the middle just was unstoppable in the regular season and most postseason games. It was always – you could always count on it for like 60 to 70% share of Corsi events, uh, maybe a goal or two, probably contain if not outright shut down whatever line they were matched up against for most of the night. It was something you could count on every single night. That line, the, the 2020 line of Taves, Sod, and Kubelik has been nowhere near that consistent. And I, I, I went through it because I went into writing this article actually thinking that that line had been more dominant in the regular season than they actually were. Like, it wasn't their, – their numbers weren't all that great. I mean, they were, they were still below 50-50 in the Corsi share and the expected goal share, scoring chances share, and high-danger chances. Like, none of them – they were not a possession juggernaut really during the regular season. They had a few games where they were pretty good – and then against Edmonton, it just all clicked. And it seemed like that was kind of indicative of who the 2019-2020 Chicago Blackhawks are, that when everything clicked perfectly, it's a pretty damn dominant, uh, can-beat-anybody-in-the-league type of team. But that click doesn't happen much. And, in fact, it's probably more the exception than the rule. And because of that, you get more games like, oh, game two on Monday night when they lost six to three. And I think that line, uh, I think all three players were well under underwater in possession uh, at even strength and none of them got on the scoreboard. I think Kubalik only had like one or two shots on goal. I, we didn't talk about this at any point or write about it, but I don't remember Kubalik even like touching the puck in game two. Yeah. He seemed very like, and you know, it's, I'm not gonna, it happens. He's a young guy. He's a rookie. He's not going to score five points in every game. It was just interesting how quickly he went from the top of the mountain to not even registering on the radar anymore. And to go back to your points, like in game two, I don't think everybody was underwater except like David Kampf for yeah, it was, some weird reason. The fourth line with uh, Kampf, Carpenter, and Highmore was the only line above water on even strength possession numbers. Yeah, and then uh, in the regular season, like no, there, no, nobody was really a possession driver ex- except again, like the fourth line because Ryan Carpenter's always had really good possession numbers. Yeah, yeah we, I think we've talked about this before. Ryan Carpenter's been like a sneaky one of the better value offseason pickups the Blackhawks have had for this season and in a while because he's not the flashy guy at the top of the roster, but for a one million dollar cap hit, he does exactly what you need him to do. He does decent on the fourth line, chips in on the penalty kill. Not gonna, not gonna. As Brandon said, fuck it up for everyone else. Exactly what you need on the fourth line. Yeah. And it it was just we we touched about this a little bit. I I think it was the 
ex- just the extremes between game one and game two. Like game one was you're a little nervous when Edmonton scored that first goal and then the Hawks scored four and everything was great. Game two, literally the first shift, 19 seconds in, Connor McDavid scores, and I think every Blackhawks fan who was honest with themselves said, oh, shit, here we go, because you know what this team can look like when things aren't clicking and they aren't looking well, and it started that way in game two, and it never really got much better, save for uh, a brief time in the third or second period when they tied it up, but even that only lasted a few minutes. Game two thoughts, gentlemen, either one of you. I don't know what uh, your, your primary thoughts were watching that. I won't call it a debacle, but let's call it less than inspiring performance. I'll let Brendan take this first because I have a hot take. Oh, I can't wait. So, Dave, to your point of McDavid scoring 19 seconds in, my thought was kind of like the – there's always like that – kid in school who's like quiet but you know like not to piss him off because like who knows whatever he's gonna do that's kind of mcdavid and like once he scored you're just like well they pissed him off last game <laughs> right because he didn't do anything until late and once he scored that second goal I was like yep he's here to play like that is very clear thank you everyone <laughs> here we go strap in um and that first goal that was let's say not great decision-making by Duncan Keith in yeah. Ambokwas, um, where I think it was Kubelik was on the other side and could have taken a wraparound on the boards if Keith pivoted yeah. the other way and sent it. And then Boquas was just flying up the ice faster than he should have and was like right on to Keith and was like, ah, you could have taken that pass up by the blue line and, exited it out yeah it was like three or four guys could have done something different in that situation and like the puck was just like all over the place because nurse couldn't control it and then somehow mcdavid did and then then you're just like well that's just mcdavid you can't really do much there yeah as soon as you see it's no you realize it's 997 with the puck right next to Corey crawford you're thinking so one nothing yeah one nothing oh yeah there it is (laughs) yeah and then the second one it was just like well, I'm sorry, Olimata. Yeah, that's like you were just you're just roasted. Like, if 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 Connor McDavid has a full head of steam through the neutral zone, and Olimata's the guy waiting for him in the defensive zone, that's a loss every time. That's just that's just a fact of life. There are very few defensemen who have the foot speed and skill to keep up with McDavid when he's coming at you with that much pace. But that goal. The more I see it, the more I don't believe – well, the more unbelievable it is because of – like, he knocked the puck down out of midair in the neutral zone to corral it in the first place. It was bouncing the whole way. He, like, juggled it. It looked like uh, Tiger Woods in that video where he would juggle the ball uh, – juggle a golf ball with a club like 15 times and then hit it 300 yards. It looked like that's what McDavid was doing with the puck for a while. And then he settled it down and – got up by the net and then just an unnecessarily high angle backhand shot that maybe a handful of guys in the league could do or could replicate. And he did this all while skating at full speed. I don't know how you stop that. That's just, that's a tip your cap. Well, that's the best player in the world. He's going to do that. Yeah. And then there was another, I think it was his third goal maybe where it went off of, Carpenter stick and then off of 
Keith's shin pad and then through Crawford's five hole. And I was just like, I think that was, yeah. that was the fourth goal that broke the three to three tie. Cause that's when I started. Okay. Yeah. That this was not going to be the Blackhawks night. Yeah, that exactly. That was my thought because I, I replayed it and I replayed it again. And I was like, yeah, that's definitely a double doink. Awesome. <laughs> I swear to God, if I hear double doink one more time, I'm so <laughs> sick of that phrase. Cause oh. it only started getting used. Nobody ever said double doink until the football game where it actually transpired. That was never a thing that people said out loud. And now it's like a part of sport lexicon and I hate it. Well, yeah, you should just be doink the clown, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the only other thing that I noticed on like a positive thing was to being able to adapt his playing style more to who he's paired with and not being like, well, if I'm not scoring, then I guess I'll just be here and exist. Yeah. And he was able to, I think he had two assists in that game. And two, and, two assists on two very, very high quality passes that not a lot of guys. Yeah. Off. Yeah. There was one behind the net where he found someone in the slot, I think. And then doc had two assists and it seems like, that Dabrinkit Doc Kane line worked pretty well. So it'll be interesting to see if that is an option come game three or later in the series. Although I, I, I don't know. I imagine Colleton's probably going to run back the game one lines with Drake Kajula coming back into the lineup, Joel Quin, uh, Joel Quinville, John Quinville going to the press box, hopefully for the rest of the postseason. I'm sure we'll discuss that later. Uh, but yeah, Kajula back with, Doc and Debrinket, and then your second line will be Strom, Kane, and Nylander, although maybe the maybe they'll cut the dead weight of Nylander and figure out something else on that line. Uh, before we go any further, though, I did want to get Shepard Price's hot take before we forget. So, uh, Shepard, go ahead. Make everybody but, angry. <laughs> speaking about somebody who got burned by Conor McDavid, although like it's kind of what do you expect out of him, I believe it is my belief, and I think I can prove it statistically, that – uh, Oli Mata and Slater Cuckoo have easily been the best offensive pairing for the Chicago Blackhawks in this series so far. Now, I, I, you said this is going to be a hot take. Like, that is so mild. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean they will agree they each, with you. Yeah, they each scored. I, I, I will say, though, but I feel like, like Blackhawks fans don't want to talk about how Oli Mata and Slater Cuckoo are, are, are the best two right now. Because, like, will, nobody wants that to be the, the, the truth, but it is. I'm going to, while you're doing this, I'm going to look it up because I feel like they've gotten a fairly, uh, Colleton has given them the most favorable zone starts and has uh, they, that favorable. They have... You speak about favorable zone starts. Duncan Keith and Adam Boquist have taken one defensive zone start. They both okay. are Oliana well, and Peter Kuku have taken three. I'm going to let you make your point while I look up some numbers to counter what you're going to say. So go ahead. So like both Keith and Boquist and Mata and Kuku have like decent numbers. Murphy and Dehan and Dehan don't like it. Just don't they just don't. Um, but Murphy and, and Cuckoo are on ice for less goals against so far. Uh, they're, they're taking more defensive zone starts. Um, they're doing the things like moving the puck, actually moving the puck and not just being like along for the ride that they need to do. Um, and they've both scored. Uh, and yes, and the yeah, Keith had two primary assists on Kubelik's goals um, in game one, but I'd take a goal over a primary assist any day. Um, and again, that pa- both of those members of those pairings have a goal, and also Olimata has a, has a 
primary assist as well. Um, so, like, is it a popular thing for the Blackhawks to have Mata and Cuckoo be the best? No. Is it the truth? Yes. Also, again, uh, put them on, put the, give them more time to put them on the PK. Because I know Mata's been taking penalties, which he should not be taking. But when he's not in the box, those two need to be helping I, out. I will say, I feel like I've noticed more of Slater Cuckoo in the offensive zone this yes. series than I have ever remembered. Like there's been a handful of times where I, I think it was more game two than game one, but there's a few times where Cuckoo was like up in the rush. I'm like, what the hell is he doing there? He never does that, but he like makes good passes, makes good decisions. And like, I'm like, Oh, all right. Like if he's going to do that, like that's not a bad idea then. Yeah. But I'm, I'm looking, so I'm, I'm scrolling through all the, all the stats here. I think, I think the one that the, the, the one I'm going to go with that seems like the most important is Mata and Cuckoo's 69.52 expected, nice. expected goal share at uh, even strength versus uh, Keith's and Boquist 64.77. And again, that higher number comes with more defensive responsibility. Yeah. I uh, I don't have a good objection for you at the moment. It's interesting in game. So in game one, when the Hawks had all the success in the world against the Connor McDavid line, or well, it was, um, yeah. Well, just McDavid had maybe his just. It was like that regular season game where McDavid just spent every time he was on the ice, he was playing defense, which is where you want him, save for those power play moments, which are gonna happen. But so in game one, Connor McDavid was primarily on the ice against. Murphy and DeHaan, and then the yeah. David Kampf line. In game two, he was primarily against Cuckoo and Mata. And while he does have higher – McDavid's possession numbers were obviously much better in game two than in game one. He didn't – he did most of his goal scoring. To, I believe he had two goals on the power play. So, yeah, even strength – like uh, I mean, I what, I what the whole conclusion here is I'm not going to be able to refute your argument uh, – I just I, – I caution – it's going to be interesting to see what will happen in games three and four when the Blackhawks have the last change and see how Colleton handles those matchups. Uh, I, I will be interested to see which line uh, – which forward line gets McDavid, which forward line gets Dreisaitl, because I assume it will be between the Taves and the comp lines on that yeah. one. And then also which D pairings he uses because he's been – like obviously DeHaan and Murphy is supposed to be the defensive-oriented – one and it looks like Cuckoo and Mata are also being more defensively oriented because of how much he's putting Keith and Boquist in the offensive zone. So yeah. maybe it's it's up to the Murphy DeHaan pairing and the Mata Cuckoo pairing to play all the defense and hope Keith and Boquist can play the, enough offense to get by. Although Mata and Cuckoo were the two guys that scored goals in game two. So it's, I, I think we might also see like a, a departure from Keith Boquist and DeHaan Murphy at some point. Uh, if the defense continues to go south, it and wasn't. I'd like, I'd like to see Keith DeHaan. I'd like, especially, I'd, I'd like to keep, see Keith DeHaan. Well, so, sorry to cut you off there, but at the I'll end, just, of, I, I did notice at the end of game one, and I'll see if I can pull this up on the Natural Stat Trick website. Which, if you have not found yourself diving into hockey analytics and you want to find a place to start, that's a very good website to do so. But I do remember in the final, so. Edmonton had a couple late power plays and they scored on him. Keith and Murphy were on the ice together. And that that's, yeah, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm trying to find, it was, it was late. I remember making a mental note of this, that there was about a 
60 to 75 second shift where Keith and Murphy were on the ice for an extended period of time. And I don't think it was because they got hemmed in their own zone. I think he just put uh, Carlton just put those two together and let them like, we've got a, uh, we got a two goal lead. There's two, three minutes left. You two shut it down for us. And then near the end, they got relieved by Mata and Dahan with obviously that leaves Boquist and Cuckoo to the bench for the majority of the end of the game. So I, that, that's an interesting thought to me is that when the game went to from six to two to six to four Hawks and they, things were getting a little nervy that the D pairing he went with was Murphy and Keith. And I feel like if the Hawks get a lead again and they need to shut it down the third period, that'll be the combo you see. And they don't have great numbers, but it's somewhat because of their defensive zone usage as well. Yeah, I mean, you're you're always going to be underwater in possession if you get thrown out in the last minute of a game because that that's just the way hockey works at that point. I think there's score effects that are supposed to help uh, alleviate that. Yeah. But before we get too far away from the game two conversation, we we got to talk about the the lineup decision now. Whether I think the more argue, interesting argument here, I think we, we're all in agreement here that we didn't understand why Quinville was the guy that was picked. No. It seemed like Sakura or Brandon Hagel would have been a better choice. I think you're both in agreement. Yes. Okay. I, I understand why he was put in there. But I don't. I don't agree with it. I, well, I, I understand, I understand Col- what Colleton said. I understand what his thought process was, but I don't agree with it. I think is Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, because of that, the more interesting debate I have, and this is where I, I, it's hard to – coaches are so uh, noncommittal, it's hard to get them to talk about this. What I'm more interested in is, did he with, – with Kajula out of the lineup, did Colleton decide ahead of time that he was only going to play whoever came in five or six minutes and he was going to double shift Kane the whole time? Because then you completely torpedo the idea of having four good lines by double shifting Kane because that really screws up the continuity of everything. So I don't understand. I don't understand why he always is so quick to play that card of double shifting Kane instead of trying either Quinville or Sakura or Hagel and let them have the opportunity to prove themselves before you start double shifting Kane. Like he did that immediately. Also, like, why don't you read the the vibes from the game and go with both like the the brink hat if you're gonna double chef somebody? Because I think oh. I honestly think I I honestly think Alex Brinkat was the guy to double shift in that game. I he did have a very noticeable performance in game two, so yeah, it's it seems just like that is the default setting for Colleton is when things are bad, double shift Kane. And I mean, to be I, fair, it, it seemed like a default setting for Quinville uh, as well at times. I don't think it's – well, I don't know. I, don't, I feel like it wasn't as consistently a thing that he did. I, 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 it, I mean, it also wasn't, it wasn't, also wasn't a thing like that Kane played the most minutes of any forward because I think he did that in the regular season. Yeah, like I, I understand the idea of wanting to have Patrick Kane on the ice more because he's your best offensive player. He can score a ton of points. Like that's I, – I get that, but it just – it doesn't seem – it seems like it, it never it, – it doesn't work. It seems like every time they double shift Kane like that, it just disjoints the lineup and it just – there's like the chemistry's off just a little bit and then 
they, it doesn't end up working altogether. And it feels like it's you're relying too heavily on Patrick Kane and not letting the rest of the team play when it's your depth scoring that's going to carry you through the series. Right. And again, two of the goal scorers were defensemen in that game. And actually, like, that when when you saw that Mod and Cuckoo scored in game two, I was thinking, oh, well, now you just need some of the actual goal scorers on this team to contribute a goal or two, and we'll be fine. And then they didn't. And that, well, Kane did, but nobody else did. Yeah, but but all in all, I mean, it was interesting to go from how much fun Game One was to how frustrating Game Two was. But isn't this kind of who these Blackhawks are? Like, they they look so good at times during the regular season. They look so awful at times during the regular season. Uh, they, I mean, they had a game where they soundly handled the Tampa Bay Lightning. And then everything was good, and then they lost two to one to the Red Wings just when they seemed like they were getting back into playoff contention. Like this is who this team is. They are who we thought they were, right? Also, for for the rep for uh, for the record, Kane has been on ice for the second most goals against with three. At even strength. Okay, I I got I. I play as much defense as Patrick Kane does. So. <laughs> yeah. Which is fine. But as Connor McDavid does as well. Because remember, game, game from game one, Connor McDavid did not play defense. Well, after- yeah, I mean, who needs Comedy Central when you can watch Connor McDavid play defense? <laughs> wow. Didn't expect- um, just watching the end of this uh, Carolina uh, Rangers series, yeah. Sebastian Ajo scored into an empty net and kind of almost did the Michael Frolik uh, celebration along the Rangers bench. <laughs> Whole areas because oh. it's Sebastian Ajo. Oh. Um, I saw table score a goal earlier. Made me sad. Yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, I feel like the the Quinville thing, the bench was shortened too quickly. Yeah, and it it should have been like at least go half the period. Like it was four minutes in that they were up too well. So it's like maybe you can score a goal within that first 10 minutes and then that kind of changes the mentality where it's not like, Oh shit, we're really not doing well. You know, hit the emergency button, go with Kane, double shifting. And also they should have gone with Brandon Hagel a, because he has a great first name. I knew you were and going B, there. He has yep. so much speed compared to those two. Yeah. <laughs> and he feels like a much more compatible Drake Kajula replacement. Yeah, I, and and Quinville does have like the the physicality aspect that Hagel can bring that Kajula has as well, but Quinville is just more reckless with hits, and Hagel is more smart about when he dishes them out and being able to separate players off the puck in board battles than Quinville is because basically Quinville just disappears in games. Yeah, and. And regardless of the, – the other problem with, like, just Quinville in general is if you can only trust him to play six minutes, why do you even bother? This is like the uh, – this reminds me of the 2014 Brandon Bullock debate when he – I think there was a triple overtime game where he played, like – Against six, the Kings where he played, like, two yeah. minutes? <laughs> it was like a double-triple overtime game, and he still played, like, six, seven minutes, if that. And it's like, you, there's got to be somebody else on this roster that can play – that you can trust with more minutes than that. There has to be. I like I refuse to believe that that you don't like Sakura or Hagel or Philip Kurashev or fuck I don't know just anybody somebody has to be able to play more than six minutes. 
that that yeah. just seems like it 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 ruins the entire like team chemistry it throws off the lineups throws off the forward lines it just it everything felt everything seemed disjointed as soon as they go to the double shifting cane thing which i understand if you do it in the last five minutes last 10 minutes of a game when you need a goal to tie it up but to do it four minutes into a game because Connor mcdavid scored twice it's like it's so quick to go to the panic button and i don't i didn't understand that it seemed too too quick to go to that tactic and then it should be noted that dylan sakura was the other forward who skated in warm-ups and then they went with quinville and lucas carlson also participated in warm-ups so take that for what you want well i i imagine either one of those players carlson i assume if a defenseman gets scratched i assume carlson is the guy who goes in and I also assume if there's another situation where Ford gets sent to the press box, either voluntarily or by the league, Dylan Sakura is probably the guy coming in for that player. At least that would be my assumption. I think you need more speed in this series, and I think Brendan Hagel brings it, though. Yeah, I, I'd i be fine with Hagel, too. Just It, it feels like Sakura is going to be the guy, but Hagel be cool, too. But um, – I don't think any of that's going to matter if the top line of Taves, Sod, and Kubalik is going to be getting sculled in possession like they did in game two. So, Yeah, they have to, they have to be better. Yeah. I think the whole team has to be better. But Absolutely. The first, the first line from the first game. they they got to find a happy medium between how bad they were in game two and how good they were in game one. And if they can find a happy medium and ride that out the next three games, maybe we got some more playoff hockey to talk about next week instead of a season recap. Instead of a season recap and a, a profile of – Alexi Lafreniere. <laughs> God. Well, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I think uh, there's a few more, maybe a couple more things we want to touch up. Actually, I take that back. There's one specific thing we want to touch on related to game one and game two, and then we're going to preview Wednesday night's game three. Come on back on the other side of this timeout and find out all about it. Welcome back to Musings on Madison here on the Second City Hockey Podcast Network. And as promised before the break, got a couple players, and I've got one particular in mind that we wanted to talk about from Game 1 and Game 2. And we're going to do that in a second, but Brandon had a specific player he wanted to talk about, and we're just going to give him the floor so he can share his thoughts with us. Yeah, so when Dave teased this, I thought he was going to bring up Alex Nylander because that is the most polarizing player on this roster, without a doubt. Yeah. And pretty much lived up to that the first two games of the series where game one looked pretty serviceable, put Zach Cassian on his ass awkwardly, which was pretty funny. To that see. was, that was so far the, the peak of Alex Nylander's career in Chicago. It's in the top five. He's got some pretty good looking goals. Yeah. Whatever. Sorry. Go on, Brandon. And then game two, he just didn't look comfortable handling the puck highlighted by the turnover in the neutral zone that led to an Oilers goal, which the defense should have helped him out at the other end. Obviously that was highlighted and basically put a big shit grin on Pat Foley's face. Cause he was able to rail Nylander for another 10 minutes on the broadcast. I wish I could give credit to it, but somebody said that as soon as Alex Nylander gets traded, he's going to get a, uh, Alexander Karpatsev esque rant from Pat Foley. And I'm, could not agree more because Pat Foley can no longer hide his contempt for Alex Nylander. It's, oh, it it's is pretty obvious. It is out there and yeah. it is just 
yeah, you can't hide it anymore. Um, and it just seemed like he disappeared more and more as the game went on. Um, and that's probably a factor of Kane having more success with Doc and Debrinket through the game. And just like the five-on-five ice time just disappeared for him. And he only played nine minutes, I think, something around there. And one shot on goal and four shot attempts. So just not the game that you would want to have for Nylander, for him to be productive, especially when he's playing with Kane. And that old adage of for him is he can play. You just got to play him with star players and he'll do the thing for you. But when he's with star players and he's not doing it, there's a problem. And maybe he sits and someone goes in. Who knows? That's my new lander speak. Thank you for bringing it up. We'll uh, discuss it among the board and get back to you later. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have everything you said is pretty much my thoughts on Nylander that it's, you keep waiting for him to put it all together. We, we, you see the skill, you know, he's got the talent. It's just for whatever reason, it's not all coming together and you really want it to come together because you don't want it to believe that the Hawks traded Henry Yokoharu for nothing. And it's just, I don't know. I I'm still, we're still waiting that that's the best of guys. We're still waiting for him to stop or waiting for him to put it all together. And, is going to start running out of time pretty soon. So, And the shame is he, ha- he has some pretty decent-looking numbers, and he's one of the Blackhawks' best takeaway guys. But, like, he's got bo- to be more than that. Yeah. If you're going to play in the top six <clears throat> and be playing opposite Patrick Kane, you have to be able to score some points. You may not have to score, like, you know, the 90 that Artemi Panarin did, however many he got that season. But you've got to be able to produce if you're going to be playing on a line with that much talent, and he's not – he hasn't done it yet, so we'll see what happens. Now, the guy I was referring to in my little tease before the break was Corey Crawford, Blackhawks goaltender. Big fan of him. I don't think anybody who's listened to the show regularly needs me to restate how much I have enjoyed his career and how much I enjoy him as a hockey player. He has clearly not been himself through games one and games two. And games one and games two? Games one and two. This coffee's wearing off, guys. I'm sorry. But but anyway, he just hasn't looked right. There were a couple goals in game one where Crawford was – there was like three or four shots on goal in his direction, and by the end of them, he was like swimming around in his crease, looking around for the puck. That's not Corey Crawford's thing. Like, he's usually – the reason he's so good is because he tracks the puck well and he's positionally sound, so he knows where the shot is coming from, and he's in the – position with the highest probability to make the save when he's like floating around the crease and kind of just turning every which way trying to find the puck that's a problem and it happened more than once in game one I don't know if it happened in game two nothing comes to mind but there was a few instances in game two where he gave up a fairly soft rebound that he usually doesn't and that's another thing Crawford's traditionally good at his rebound control so I don't there's nothing I don't think anybody's going to fault Corey Crawford for game two because he got burned by his defense a lot, kind of a theme this season. But he also wasn't that great in game one. Luckily, the offense was so good that it didn't make a difference. But if the Hawks are going to win this series, Crawford probably has to be better in net than he's been in game one and game two. It 
doesn't seem like it take would take him that long to find it. I mean, we can go down his career highlights. They're pretty impressive. So one game can turn everything around for him, and then he'll be the Corey Crawford we've watched in the playoffs for the last decade. But he's not there yet, and the hope is that he finds it really soon because I don't know if the Hawks win the series without him playing at his usual level. Right, and I, he, like he can he, he can still be the best playoff goaltender in the league right now, but – like he hasn't shown up in those first two games, but he especially hasn't shown up behind a few guys more so than others. Like he stopped every shot that Kirby Doc's not been on ice for. Um, but he's <laughs> he's been horrible behind Duncan Keith and Alex and Adam Boquist, which is and like not behind the other two defensive pairings either, which is a really strange turn of events. Yeah, I mean, I mean Corey Crawford's no Jonas Corpusalo, but easy for you to say. <laughs> I know, right? I got, I got hung up on that a little bit. He, I mean, he allowed three goals today, so. But before that, I mean, yeah. lights out. <laughs> he was fantastic game one. I don't think anybody here is going to uh, express a lack of confidence. Corey Crawford, I, I won't say he's not going to figure it out until the series is over and the Hawks are going figure home. Figure it out. He'll, he'll figure it out. He'll get there. I, uh, I, I have confidence in him. It's, it's some of the other players on the roster that I'm less confident about, but we'll, we'll see how it all goes. He definitely has to play better because Connor McDavid and Dryzide are still on that other team. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty terrifying. And having a goaltender that can make a few saves when the defense is completely falling apart is how the Blackhawks. That was kind of their mo during the regular season. So if he can do that a couple times in the postseason, that's how they're going to win the series. I also don't blame Crawford for misplaying that puck behind the net because it. Might have just been like the ice was shit. Yeah, and yeah, it that... skipped on him a little bit, and it also seemed like he just kind of was like, "Ah, shit." Yeah, because he's like a very soft-spoken guy, so he's just like, "Shit." Yeah, There's... and then it was just like, "Oh, well, the team's gonna give up the rest of the way now." So I guess that's that. I feel like I've seen more than the average amount of mix-ups behind the net that have resulted in goals in this week of hockey. Oh well, yeah. yeah, there was there was another one tonight. Uh, Calgary and Winnipeg. One of the Winnipeg defensemen was skating the puck behind the net. Hellebuck, and yeah. <laughs> Hellebuck went back there and hit off his skate, and I don't know who scored for Calgary, but it was it was a very similar to the Crawford incident in game two. So maybe that's part of getting back into the swing of things is communication between defensemen and goaltenders. So I also would have loved if that happened to Mike Smith because that <laughs> reaction would have been amazing. I Before we get too far away from game one, I just want to say uh, – how annoying he was in 2012. There was a, the petty part of me so thoroughly enjoyed watching him get lit up in game one. That was just, just chef's kiss. Just, mwah. just, uh, I felt part, there was a, a petty part of me that has been cured after watching that all go down. I kind of wish they would have put him back in for game two, just so I could have watched it again. But Oh, maybe maybe the Hawks will chase Koskinen in Game Three, and then we can laugh at Mike Smith some more. Well, you could always three. We exactly. But uh, so Game One, Game Two in the books. Game Three Wednesday night, feeling fairly pivotal in a five-game series. That whoever wins Game Three probably have a good stranglehold on the series. Uh, gentlemen, Shepard, Brandon, what's the biggest thing you're going to be watching Game Three, and I guess some main for the Blackhawks to get that victory. Patrick Kane's got to show up with more than one point, I think. That's true. We haven't – Kane hasn't – I mean, 
again, part of that could be the aforementioned line mate he has on his opposite wing who hasn't been playing so well. But Kane, like, speaking of Corey Crawford, like, finding his form later in the series, I feel like similarly confident that there will be a game where Patrick Kane is heard from quite loudly. Yeah, that's going to be a pivotal game. Brandon, what about you? Any players you're watching or other keys you're watching? Yeah. I want to see if that Debrinket doc Kane line becomes more of a thing the rest of the way. Because I feel like there's some potential there. But I also don't know, like, what the hell happens with Strom in that situation. So, I mean, Strom, Strom could jewel somebody, if not. <laughs> somebody. <laughs> Strom could jewel somebody. If Nylander is sat. Uh is not is not might might not be a bad idea. Car, he Strom and Carpenter were pretty good this season together. Yeah, I just don't think that there's any chance in hell that they're breaking up that fourth line unless someone has to like take a shit like Panarin did last year. <laughs> I love bringing that up. That is one of my favorite press conference bits. Oh, that is pretty. Like, great. where's Panarin? He had to take a shit. Like, <laughs> all right, Torts, thank you. I didn't know that that actually like. There, I remember there was a soccer game i think it was like second third fourth division somewhere off the main radar so i have no idea what the <laughs> team is. but a player like just randomly ran in back into the uh, locker room during the game and then came out a few minutes later and the whole crowd saying he went for a shit <laughs> they're chanting it he, huh were they chanting it yeah it was he went for a shit he went for a shit <laughs> whatever the guy's name was he went for a shit delightful really i english soccer fans are great uh didn't expect that tangent to happen tonight. See, even even when we have actual hockey to talk about, the way we can take a left turn into nothingness, just we're we're on we're in midseason form, guys. But I don't know. I, uh, I I think that's all the thoughts I have for game three. I mean, they were the Hawks were good in game one. They were bad in game two. Series is still alive. I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen these next three games. These, I, th- I feel like Edmonton is similar to the Hawks in that they're just committed to so many extremes with the way they play that it's either w- really, really good or really, really bad and no in between. And there's probably going to be – it might be another six-goal game to, or six goals to win in game three. It might happen every game this series with the way these teams play defense. So I'm just glad we got hockey to watch again. I, g- I guess that's a general thing I, I-, I wanted to ask you guys is uh, I tweeted this today. Having hockey on starting at here in the central time zone, starting at 11 a.m. and having it on the entire day feels very much like the World Cup for uh, soccer. It happens every four years. I kind of like this. Granted, I, I'm able to work from home, so I'm able to watch these games at home, and it's uh, it's pretty great. And I feel like there's a way hockey might want to look into doing this more often. I don't think you can make an entire season out of it, but maybe like. Pick a week. Saturdays. Oh, say that again? Saturdays. Well, do I feel like during weekdays, though. Like, Saturday, I, attentions are a little more divided, especially, like, if you do it in the fall, you're going up against college football, and that seems like a bad idea. But I don't know. If you picked a random, picked a random week and just decide to have games all day long once the full 82-game season comes back, I'd sit and watch all day. You know when they do it? They do it the week before Christmas because that's when college uh, bowl games haven't really started yet. Yeah. You do that, and then on the backside of Christmas, you have World Juniors. That's – Got it. Yeah. 
call up Batman. We got an idea. I'm just just having this thing with hockey on all day long is it's pretty great. I'm a uh, ten out of ten would recommend. I got Gary on speed dial, so I'll hook that up. Oh yeah, yeah. All right, let me know how it goes. Uh, <laughs> I think that's gonna do it for our hockey talk. So uh, Brandon Kane, I do believe it is your turn. What's your food take this week? All right, the best dipping sauce for chicken nuggets is barbecue. I. Mm. I mean, I can't disagree. No, I mean it's not. It's not that. It's not a very hot take. I mean, there. I'm sure there are honey mustard purists out there, and I'm. A, I'm personally a, just a straight up honey purist. But a honey purist. Yes, if you dip chicken nuggets in honey, that's it's great. Just plain honey, not like honey mustard, just straight honey. Yeah, McDonald's used to have like packs that were honey. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I know what you're talking about, but I've never heard anybody use the phrase honey purist before. What exactly does that mean? I uh, I enjoy my honey pure. <laughs> you get it, like do you have a beehive out in your backyard and you just harvest it straight from the source? I wish and my dad has talked about like if he has ever had the space becoming a beekeeper. I I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> I feel like that create a lot of buzz at like family reunions. A fucking I <laughs> I knew you were setting up for something just the way your tone was when you started that sentence. Yeah, because I put out a poll for that, and people were like, "Where's the ranch? Why didn't you put ranch?" On? That is, I, was I like, forgot the the Midwest. I put barbecue, honey bus, honey mustard, and ketchup, and I didn't put ranch because I was like, "Eh, I'll just keep it to three. And people are like, "Where's the ranch?" The oh. Midwestern fascination with ranch dressing is obnoxious to me. Yes, like it's fine. Sure. It's a it's a solid condiment. Like it's good with dressing. It's good for chicken. It's great with wings. But the people who dip it in pizza ought to be shot. Yes. Jesus. Ranch should, only be, ranch should only be used for cheese curds, in my opinion. What? Oh, I don't. I don't think I've ever done. Yeah, I've never done that. Mm. All right, but yeah, I mean, dairy, dairy. Come on <laughs> it's just I. It's the way people do ranch dressing on everything in the Midwest. I don't get it. I've never been like like again like dressings. Usually good with most meat products on the side, but. It shouldn't be the main course of your meal. It's a condiment, not an entree. <laughs> this is a very good point. I appreciate it. I actually I want that uh, quoted on my on my tombstone. Ranch dressing, a condiment, not an entree. That might be the headline of this podcast. Make it the subhead. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's probably going to happen now. It's way too good. Uh, all right. I think it's going to do it for this episode. Game three is Wednesday night. Brandon Shepard, any final thoughts? If you want to throw a prediction out there, go ahead. But I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make one, but I might have a thought. This game will end before midnight. I'll take, I'll take the over. Blackhawks are winning, winning odds and Oilers are winning evens. I like their chances then. I, I still remain unconvinced that Edmonton can outplay the Hawks at five on five consistently enough to win this series. And I don't think their special teams are going to be good enough to carry them through the series. If the PK ever shows any signs of life, it's over. The Blackhawks PK or the Edmonton? Yes. Blackhawks PK. Yeah. If, 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 if the Blackhawks, I'd say if they hold Edmonton to like two power play goals, the rest of the way, this series is probably going to the Hawks. Even if they hold them to like two power play goals a game. Yeah. So it's over. Yeah. I mean, I mean the first game Edmonton didn't score one goal at five on five. Yeah. 
And as we talked about in an alarming amount on this podcast, Edmonton is not a good five-on-five hockey team. They hadn't been all season, and they really haven't been in this series. They got Connor McDavid did Connor McDavid things in game two, and then their power play was really good, and then the Hawks had a bad power play stretch in the second period, and that was kind of the game. So five-on-five hockey, I think, still favors the Hawks, and it seems like the team that wins five-on-five tends to win the series unless the power play does something astronomically good, which – I'm I'm surprisingly more and more confident in the Hawks as the series goes on. I didn't think I'd get there, but we'll see what happens. I think that's going to do it for this episode of Musings on Madison, though. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned to secondcityhockey.com. We'll have plenty of previews and game threads and recaps and reaction articles the next day. A whole bunch of stuff for you to read while you're pretending to work but watching hockey and need something to read while the games are on during the intermission. Follow us on Twitter feel free to interact with us during the games. One of us will be manning the account during every the games, every one of the games. And we'll be back next week with an episode and hopefully we're previewing another Blackhawks playoff series. So for Shepard, for Brandon, I'm Dave. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Keep wearing masks. Please keep wearing masks. And go Hawks. Da, 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 da.